0: Hello, my name is Daniel Lev and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. On this episode, I speak again with my friend Mike Myers, and this time we talk about immortality. Or rather we talk about the notion some philosophers bring up, especially those with an existentialist bent, that things would not have value unless we knew that they could be lost. It's because we know that our favorite cup will one day break, that we cherish it. It's because we know that our loved ones will leave us or one day die, that we love them ever the more. And it's because we know that we too are finite and face the inevitability of the grave that we love life and care about living. These philosophers argue that immortality in the religious sense, or even in some earthly sense, is a kind of existence that they would not want, because when we lose the ability to lose things, we lose the ability to value things. Mike and I delve into this question, and towards the end of the podcast, we each try and answer whether we would accept immortality right now, if it was offered to us. It's not a simple question, and it's also a fun one, but one that may be more practical uh, than a lot of people might realize. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Myers. All right. Mike Myers, welcome back to Reenchantment. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah, I'm enjoying these conversations. I feel like we're going to be having more of them, if if, if it is within my power, to to keep bringing you over to my place and talking philosophy at you. It is well within your power. (laughs) Okay, great. So, today, I want to get into something that I've been encountering over the years for, for a long time. It is a perspective, I guess an existential perspective, on the difference between the finite and the eternal, or rather like where the emphasis is placed in in a lot of philosophical and religious systems. I'll start off with with a quote by Martin uh, Haglund. Haglund? Haglund? Not sure which. He wrote uh, This Life, and in the book uh, early on he says that all world religions hold the highest form Of existence is eternal rather than finite and then he goes on to say that any life worth living though would be finite and his point there is that we gain our value from the fact that things end we gain a sense all sense of value he says derives from that and that to think of you know eternity To imagine that things go on forever and ever after we die almost devalues a lot of what we care about in this world. And and I've run into similar strains of argument throughout the years. When I read The Education's End by Anthony Cronman, a Yale law professor, he makes a very similar argument. Actually, I wonder, because he and Haglund, I believe, are both at Yale. So I wonder if they've had a had little coffee coffee time conversations about these things. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they have. Uh, and then w- when I was listening to a lecture at, at Harvard, Roberto Unger was talking with Cornell West, and the, Unger talks about the, a very similar thing. Mm. And just another quote to, to frame the conversation GK Chesterton said that the way to love anything is to realize it might be lost and I feel like that again is a is a reframing and a restating of, of, of that central thesis yeah. ironically Chesterton was I believe an Orthodox Christian yeah Catholic yeah. And so, so it, it it kind of puts a little bit of a wrinkle in, into it because it's well, Haglund is saying that uh, religiosity oftentimes removes us from this kind of valuation of of what can be lost. And if things are preserved in eternity, you know, as as many religions kind of imagine that they are in different different afterlives, then what gives things value? Yeah, yeah. So, what, what do you think? What are, what are some initial impressions on on this question?
1: Well, I think that. There may be a bit of amor fati happening here, in order to approach, or that, which is the love of fate, in order to approach the question at all. We are, as far as we know, finite beings. We die, and that that existential reality is is a difficult one. We don't we don't deal with death very well, and I think that it's a way of from our finite vantage point, a way of trying to come to grips with our own finitude. I don't know if that's a critique or not. My, I have some suspicions. First of which is that we don't, like what licenses us to be able to make claims about what an eternal existence would be, right? It's something that's just well outside our experience.
0: And, and yet it's such an important claim of religions. I think Hagelin elsewhere in, in his book says like that even more important for, for people than like the factual facticity of the Bible or, or the existence of God is the guarantee of eternity.
1: Yeah, I think that that's true on a day-to-day basis. If someone that you love dies, you want to believe that they live on in some capacity. I'm, since... You know, really we're talking about an afterlife. And when I try to think about what an afterlife might be, it's a little bit difficult because I think a lot of this kind of conversation presupposes that were we to be transposed into an eternal register, that we would be wired the same. Right. Or that we would preserve all of these pieces of ourselves when that's not entirely clear and Mm -hmm. especially in the history of religious thought usually there's some there's some aspect of thinking about the afterlife where where it's not all of you Mm -hmm. that that lives eternally particularly in like judaic conceptions conceptions of the afterlife it's it's uh, you would know better than i do but it's just like one part of the soul that goes on indefinitely furthermore i think about in zen buddhism and zen is a very multifaceted tradition so different views different people have different views depending on depending on who you ask right Mm -hmm. but certainly one view in in zen there's always a question of what is it that gets reincarnated. Well, one answer to that question is that it's just your karmic energies that mm-hmm. gets re-reincarnated. So it's not your personality, it's not your memories, it's not your body, it's mm-hmm. not it's not all of these things that we typically identify as the self. It's a very like peculiar piece of you that you're not necessarily even conscious of that ends up being
0: mm-hmm. being
1: rearticulated into another self and you can i think you can reasonably pose a question of you know does that give us what we want out of reincarnation you know what
0: i mean sure sure um, and and you can pose the same question about you know heaven and immortality in mm-hmm. heaven and that's it, it's it's an interesting question and particularly so because well with all the transhumanist talk these yeah. days, the question of, well, okay, if we could hypothetically extend our lives on and on, uh, and even, like, upload our b- brains and to live forever, what would that be like? Uh, and actually, Anthony Cronman, in, in one of his books, I believe it was Education's End, but it could could be his other, other one, he, he basically says, you know, we don't, we wouldn't, we like to think that we can understand what immortality is would be like. Yeah. But he says that he argues that no we we don't and we can't because it essentially would remove any even if even if like bodily like you know mentally everything was to be the same to remove the notion that things are going to end and that we're going to die mm-hmm. is to remove you know our sense of impetus mo- motion through time you know the sense of like what you know, valuing our jobs or or, or you know the, the the people that are around us, and, and and here, well, actually, you know, even as I say it, like I have I have like you know potential counterarguments against that, but but there there is something to be said about like thing things may not necessarily be the same mm-hmm. if you remove uh, the possibility of death.
1: Yeah. So uh, Martin Heidegger has this idea of being towards death, and and the idea being that as we if we keep death in mind then it fills the the things of life with with meaning and with with substance in a way that it doesn't otherwise but that's kind of a rare state of being i think yeah
0: and in fact most of the time we live without thinking about death
1: yeah so that idea that my job is meaningful to me or that I do things because I'm going to die or I'm going to, you know, I I don't, it doesn't track with my phenomenology. It doesn't track mm. with my experience of the world. I mean, when I go and, and get up and go to the store and buy a pack of cigarettes, like, I'm not in my head thinking, like, I'm going to die, so I better go get these cigarettes, you know? <laughs> now maybe there's maybe that there's something to that on a subconscious level but like there's not much I can really speak to about that there is I think an aesthetic quality to something being fragile mm-hmm. and something being like precious in that way but I don't find myself thinking about that and you know maybe it's a faults on my part you know it's a flaw right but i don't find myself in my day-to-day life thinking about that too much so when i go to work the impetus is to is because i just have this thing to do so i Mm -hmm. i get up and go it's not even about the money so much it's just i have to be here and i have to do these things right Mm -hmm. and i i just can't it seems it seems to me to be correct to say that we wouldn't know what infinity would be, mm-hmm. particularly under a transhumanist lens, because, well, we'll get into it, but particularly under a transhumanist
0: lens. But, but to say that things won't have any value... Like, like I guess, you know, one of... In, in, in fact, in reading Kram and, and his points about this, one of the, the kind of counter-arguments that uh, popped into my head was like, well, you know, all of us have been just bored... And when you're bored, like you're not thinking about death, like you're you're just there trudging along. And and if and if the the, the fear of death was was really present and imminent, then like you probably wouldn't be that bored. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Uh, and so and and in in a state of boredom, which and in most of our lives, most of the time, we we kind of assume things are going to keep going uh, mm. the, the way they are. In fact, I think. One of the powers of what Heidegger was talking about, what the existentialists were talking about, is, and Heidegger makes this point, most people don't live towards death. Yeah. Most people live obscuring that reality from themselves. Mm-hmm. Sartre would say in bad faith. Yeah, yeah. That there's something inauthentic about living without that that, you know, with an eye towards the end. But so I guess, you know, let's let's focus on, on maybe the more yeah maybe the more interesting point of like we don't really have a good sense of what eternity and immortality could be like
1: yeah or what we would be under those conditions right i mean i think one of the defining qualities of personhood is finitude which is a very heideggerian notion it's one of the reasons why the idea of a personal god doesn't make sense to me
0: Right, is because what would an infinite person be, right? My own perspective on this is that the personal God thing is more for our benefit uh, to be able to communicate and talk with God as if they were something that it was something we could understand. Mm -hmm. That is a view that makes the most sense to me.
1: When I try and construct in my head a version of christianity that would be reasonable you know okay i can buy the idea of a first cause i can buy the idea of nature and the universe having a certain teleology i don't know if the arguments work for that right but in but the conclusion is something that like it's not unthinkable yeah and you know i can buy most of these things but that one chasm is really the 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 one where i sort of fall down and and probably the most satisfying answer i've heard about it is that whatever this thing is if you come to think of it as a person then you can enter into an i and Thou relationship with it you can enter into you can you can react to this thing in the way that it's appropriate to react to it you can love this Mm -hmm. being right as opposed to if it's just some
0: abstract you know deistic you know out there it becomes a a god of abstraction much like you know Spinoza Mm -hmm. pointed towards part of why I disagree with the quotation as I think about it
1: more is that like we don't see things as finite I don't think by default we do I think that we can through rigorous like training and through meditation and through things like that. But the idea that that finitude or transience, right, is, is a marker of all things is is an idea that in the Buddhist tradition certainly is one that, that has to be cultivated over years and years of meditation. There's an old Zen Buddhist story about a Zen master who had a favorite cup that he mm. would drink out of.
0: I think I've heard this one.
1: And someone asked you know, you're not supposed to be attached to anything. Like, how do you have a favorite cup? And he said, in my mind, this cup is already broken,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: And that kind of consciousness of being aware of the finitude of, of things is not something that comes naturally to us, I don't think. It's one of the
0: reasons why death is so disturbing to us. And and yet I think I, I, I think you, you're right. You're right in pointing that out that this, this isn't, in a sense, a natural way of thinking about things. And yet... It kind of it is the point that that these thinkers are, are are making you know Chesterton the way to love anything is to realize it might be lost to realize that the the cup is already broken in a sense mm-hmm. like allows you to value its existence ever the more yeah. to assume things are finite it is something to be to be really trained and and the existential perspective is a difficult one
1: yeah I remember once hearing a lecture from a from a Buddhist monk who said, someone approached me and asked me, shouldn't we just follow our hearts? And the answer is no, absolutely not. (laughs) The untrained heart is not a good guide. And, And specifically there, it's the untrained heart. Yeah, specifically the untrained heart, yeah. The meaning that there's some process that a human being has to go through, there's some initiatory process if i can use that kind of western language that a human being has to go through in order to in order to in order to live well this is an ancient greek notion as well and we see it we certainly see it in in the western occult tradition we certainly see it in in buddhism and hinduism and even in their exoteric versions of the faith but you know the idea of, of being a person who lives well is 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 the work of a lifetime furthermore i i think in connection to that the the hermit the tarot card the hermit with the la- with the lantern mm-hmm. is supposed to be he has the lantern because he's looking for an honest man <laughs> and he's sort of stuck in that space until or that's that's one interpretation of that card which is again a very greek kind of notion and so i think about these ideas of of having to have some kind of structure through which one can cultivate some kind of institution through which one can cultivate virtue or or the skills necessary to lead a good life and i wonder if it makes me wonder if if the person who's leading a good life after, you know, who has trained their heart, would eternity be as miserable for them as it would be for the the random person off the street? Yeah. You know, if we talk about the great swamis or the great, you know, like, gurus and people like that, people who really do live their lives as if they are eternal, you don't get the impression that they're beating themselves up about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which which then, you know, poses the question of where where does value come from if not from this, you know, notion that things can be things can are finite and can be lost. Although that that is that can add and and emphasize something's value if you mm-hmm. realize that it can be lost, it is maybe not the place from which its value comes. Yeah,
1: I think there's I think that's, you know, multifaceted. I think that we can value things for that reason, right? I think that like fine china, for instance, there's the delicacy of that, that porcelain is has a beauty to it. These extremely delicate things that have made it through the the, the ages. I understand the the sort of value and, and beauty of that, but it's also an unusual experience to encounter something that I think about that way. Mm. I don't, you know, well, when I have a a glass of water, I'm just not thinking about. You know, isn't it good that I have this glass because I won't have it at some point? Maybe I should be thinking about that, but it's just not the thought that comes
0: to my mind. Maybe the 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 kind of takeaway, at least that I'm getting here, is that thinking in this way, you know, underscores and makes bold the fact that oh, like what you have now is valuable mm-hmm. because most likely you will lose it, but. The thing that gives it value maybe is something more more basic it's the the experience itself the our 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 senses as they take it in and the the way in which our our biology is wired mm-hmm. the way they relate to our desires and our identity and our you
1: know and our personality and all these different things right I mean mm-hmm. you know I you know in In a narrow sense, when I use the word I, I'm referring to ego-based consciousness, essentially. Mm -hmm. But in a broader sense, I'm referring to, like, a network of different psychological processes, biological processes, a certain history, a certain tradition that, that all sort of intersect with each other and are not necessarily coherent with each other either. And that structure, that sort of webbed structure of the I is probably values different things in different ways, depending on what what aspect of the self we're talking I I wish I had pulled up the quotation because I thought about it, and I didn't, but Kierkegaard in Fear and Trembling says that if you're on a boat, this is obviously not, it's a <laughs> <to> paraphrase, <laughs> uh, if you're on a boat in the middle of a storm, um you don't look down at the waves, you look up at the stars to prevent yourself from getting sick, to orient yourself, etc. And the point of that is to say that, you know, our our life is this tumultuous, like, stormy thing. And in order to keep ourselves oriented, in order to keep ourselves sort of still, we need some conception of, of the eternal. We need some some, we need stars to look at. Otherwise, we can just get lost completely in in our day to day in the in the tumult the tumult of our day to day existence and i think there's something to that
0: you know there's a, a quote that comes to mind it was the uh, Chartruvi- chartruvian monks i believe the, the, the monks that make sure char- Chartreuse. Chartreuse, yeah, yeah. the uh, they were one of them was talking about how you know their their days are very regimented the same Basically, the things every day in a cloister. They only uh, sleep like four hours a night, too. Do they really? Yeah. Wow. And yeah, for those that don't know, apparently only, only like two or three people in the world know how to make chartreuse. It's mm. in this French monastery, and the, the recipe is like 500 years old. And mm. it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating piece of information. But the, the, the monks that make uh, chartreuse, one of them said, the days pass quickly when you live in the shadow of eternity. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really, it emphasized for me, like, oh, you know, you are, when you live the same day again and again, away from society, mm-hmm. and you're focused on on the stars, you're focused sure. on the, these kinds of religious stars, these notions, mm-hmm. your, you know, time works very differently, mm-hmm. the years pass very differently, and I guess, you know, we were last time speaking about the the kind of fluctuations of time you know in the realm of psychedelics yeah and I and earlier you you said psychedelics aside like you mm. know, the closest thing we can come to eternity well I think to ignore the psychedelic experience here is to maybe ignore. A really profound glimpse of what eternity might actually be like.
1: Yeah, uh, that's true. I'm just worried about making it the psychedelics podcast. <laughs> I know, I, I, I know, I know what, you, I know what uh, you mean.
0: I know what you mean. The one, th- the one thing that I, that I've I've learned from you know my own experience in in eternity mm-hmm. is uh, it really depends what kind of eternity you're living. <laughs> yeah, and it depends on what kind of
1: you is living that eternity. Right. I mean, yeah. the. I I can't help but think of Groundhog. Have you seen Groundhog Day? I haven't, but I know the, the premise of the movie. So, yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen it, Bill Murray wakes up on Groundhog's Day. He's a miserable prick, and he... Am I allowed to say that? Uh,
0: it, it's, it's said.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, it, he wakes up the next day to find that he woke up on the same day again and again and again, and so he has to relive this day over and over and over, and so you get this sort of eternal recurrence of the same this Nietzschean and his journey through that exposure to eternity is a journey towards learning to live a life that he would want to live over and over and over again and so he he goes through all these self-destructive ways of coping with it and then eventually he grows as a character and he and he he becomes a decent human being and it's a beautiful film and i I highly recommend it but i think about that film just because it's the exposure to eternity that gives him the appreciation
0: for things in life Mm -hmm.
1: as opposed to taking it away from the the
0: finitude Uh, yeah yeah he became someone that that he could live with that was a a better character at heart Mm -hmm. And then after he he left that you know recurring Groundhog Day, like it's about m- maintaining it. Like it, you're never done being that person. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's true. The writers of the film have said that he's he spent something like ten thousand years in that loop. And when you watch the movie, that's not immediately apparent, right? But he got a lot of practice being yeah. that person. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder, you know, I think a lot about how. For me, one of the one of the problems that I experience in my life is that my default state is a, is a depressive one. If I'm not moving or reading or doing something, then then I'll sink into a depression, right? Whereas I feel like I'd like to be in a position where my default state is to just be okay, and that seems like a really important fundamental piece of what it is to be uh successful at being a human being <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> and it's one of the things that attracts me to, to Zen Buddhism because you just sit for like an hour and you know you just practice sitting if you can just sit still and be okay for an hour that's a that's a that's a useful skill and it's very difficult to cultivate that in uh, you know modern life with all this technology, and there are just so many ways to distract yourself, and so many ways to, to not sit still, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to say, furthermore, that doesn't—that's not just Zen Buddhism. That—that that extends to many of the religious traditions. The idea that we sit in silence in one way or another. I'm reading a lot. I've been reading a lot about contemplative prayer in Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's all about sitting silent, right? And sort of being able to do that and having the sort of cheerfulness of heart and demeanor where you're not miserable is, I think, a practicable skill. And I think it's extremely important. And I think it also bears a lot on the question of, well, what if we lived eternally? Well, if you're okay you're just kind of okay as your baseline right, right. If, you, if you're
0: okay today and you're okay tomorrow yeah you'll probably be all right yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, years from now
1: and if anything we ha- we have that much more time to practice that skill right. but it's also not a skill that most people that most people invest time in practicing to my to my knowledge
0: right and, and it's, a, it's a difficult skill so question would you live an eternal life yes or no right now decide
1: yeah i think so it's <laughs> Difficult to be put on the spot like
0: that? (laughs) Well, congratulations! (laughs)
1: Um, I think think that were I given the option... I mean, whatever version of me that would exist eternally is not going to be the version of me that exists now. I think that that's a big enough shift to go from, from... a finite existence to an infinite existence, I think that's a big enough shift that that would dramatically impact a person. And, but it would be interesting to spend that time, to spend as much time as possible. Like, I feel like I never have enough time. It would be really interesting to be able to spend that time at my leisure to, to, cultivate myself and to read the books that i've always wanted to read and to develop different relationships with different people across different eras Mm -hmm. and and to just watch the unfolding of humanity as kind of a grand
0: drama Mm -hmm. the 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 counter arguments that that i've heard from from some of the thinkers that i mentioned earlier is that you wouldn't then be motivated to do anything but i you know at the end of this conversation, I actually don't think that's necessarily true. You may lose some of the urgency that you might otherwise have had, but I think you would go crazy if you didn't do things. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like the, the, the motivation is you, you stay sane. <laughs> yeah, but,
1: and, but also, I mean, I have made decisions in my life that have been on the basis of, I don't want to die without having done this, Mm -hmm. right? That thought has crossed my mind. It's one of the reasons I moved to New Orleans. I didn't Mm. want to die without having lived in New Orleans. Cheers to that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's really rare that that's the impetus behind my decision-making it's not like i think to myself i don't want to die without having this bowl of cheerios right like it's it's talk
0: about psychedelic thoughts yeah right um
1: uh most of my decision-making faculties probably aren't you know they're they're probably much more mundane than that and they're probably much more rooted in instinct and and sort of subconscious biological like needs and urges and stuff like that that i then later rationalize into some kind of um when i reflect on my decision making process knowing what i know and believing what i believe about the mind i think that it's highly i think it's just a kind of an absurd model and i maybe i'm being uncharitable to the thinkers that you're that you're thinking about but but it seems like an absurd model to me to suggest that if i lived eternally i wouldn't need to get eggs <laughs> like or wouldn't want to get eggs yeah maybe mm-hmm. i'll go through phases in my eternal life of liking eggs and then not liking eggs right and, but, but, know, but, it but it is like
0: if if we are if we can maintain a level of humanity that we currently do then we will still have motivations uh, we will still have things that we like to do and get pleasure uh-huh. from doing Is a whole other thing if we lose our sense of humanity, but then, like, who knows what what that existence would be like.
1: I think if we lose our humanity, we're much more likely to come to terms with with the eternal. With with the eternal. I mean, I think the hardest part about living an eternal life, assuming that I have the same psychological constitution as I do now, would be people I'm close to dying and leaving my life and all of that. But I'm at an age now where I've known a few people who've died and, and I've had plenty of people come and go from my life. And maybe the weight of that is sort of cumulative, but, you know, I think of Anne Rice and interview with the vampire and how Mm. like his whole thing is that he's just like weighed down by, by, by all that loss. And that seems to me like a matter of perspective Mm -hmm. now but i i also recognize that like i'm saying this from a very naive standpoint and i think that any conversation about this is going to be from a very naive standpoint because we just don't have the experience or we just don't have the contact like all we can do is kind of look at the moments in our existential life where we come into contact with something like eternity yeah
0: and and I think it it may be because of that that I might say that no I wouldn't take eternity Mm -hmm. I'd rather the devil I know yeah um I I
1: I mean I wonder like what does it mean to say live an eternal life because does that mean that that I'll be like floating in space after the sun like blows up in like because because like that could suck right right. um uh There are things like that where I,
0: where, I don't know, uh, where I would pause. I think if, if we were given the choice to conclude our lives voluntarily, then that's a different story.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the transhumanist conception. And I wanted to talk about that before we go, because I do think that there's a very real possibility that you and I might be the first generation to live to to experience radical life extension
0: Mm, fingers crossed knock on wood yeah
1: (laughs) and so these questions might be much more immediate for us than than we realize and i can't help but feel like like i kind of want to call bullshit in saying that you wouldn't take the eternal life and the reason why is because if your lung fails i think that you'll replace it with the robot lung and if right. you if it's, this it's, fails you're going to...
0: different it's a difference between extended life and eternal life i would i would gladly live a longer life yeah but i don't think i would l- want to live an eternal life
1: i think i'd just like to have a i mean a lot of my motivation for going on <laughs> in life is to is that i enjoy assuming a kind of posture of eating popcorn and watching the sort of decline of civilization, right? And there's something about, like, the sweeping grand opera of history as it pro- progresses mm-hmm. that I think I'd like to view in a way that a normal lifespan wouldn't allow me to
0: view. There, there is, though, the question of, this is getting into just uh, hypothetical land, but actually, it, as bringing into into a a realm of practicality like if you are able to live this existence then so would most you know other parts of society maybe eventually all of society Mm -hmm. and if that happens does history progress does history end yeah
1: Yeah. i think that's an interesting question i think I think it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast, honestly, to, to pose that question. Um, uh, to give a quick answer, um, I'm of the suspicion that it would, but it would, be, it would progress in a different way.
0: Mm -hmm. all right uh well so i think for the time being at least we have yes for immortality on your box and i'm gonna say no for now unless Mm -hmm. if if we but i think we can agree if we have a we have a button we could press and jettison from this uh reality i think that's it's a safe bet we'd probably probably say yes to (laughs) that
1: yeah i think that if we have the ability to end our lives that's that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, that would be a good deal. Hopefully, we get to keep our our youth as well. Oh yeah, uh, don't uh,
0: don't want immortality without that. Yeah, that
1: <laughs> that would be horrible.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. Have thoughts or feedback on this episode? Send me a message by going to reenchantmentpod dot com and going to the contact page. And if you'd like the message of this show and want to support the podcast, please help sustain it by becoming a patron by going to reenchantmentpod.com and following the Patreon link. I rely on patrons instead of ads to pay for all the tech, time, and production costs to make this show happen, so if you can contribute anything, it would be a tremendous help, and I'd be very grateful for it. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.